for those of you who are with us for the first time, we're, we're spending April in uh, kind of an extended Easter series, if you will. Uh, we began on Palm Sunday with Jesus entering the city and being proclaimed God's King, which He is. And then we, we met on Good Friday evening uh, to look at Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which atoned for our sins. Uh, we, we met again on Resurrection Sunday to talk about His resurrection from the dead. Uh, the, the, the well from which he gives us life, in which we have resurrection life. And uh, then we talked about his ascension last week, that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and what that means. And this morning, uh, we're now in Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at uh, the event known as Pentecost. And uh, I'll read this passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. If you would listen along and follow along, and then we'll talk about that. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, Lord, the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we seek to understand what it is that your word is telling us, and so... 
I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the word Pentecost, you can kind of hear it in there, the penta part, means 50th day. 50 days after the Feast of Passover, there's another feast. It's called the Festival of Weeks in Deuteronomy chapter 16 or the Festival of the Harvest in Exodus chapter 23. And it's a a dedication of the harvest to the Lord. Like the Passover, many Jews come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Some who came for Passover were able to stay the whole time, about seven weeks, and, and to celebrate Pentecost as well. And God pours out his Holy Spirit on his people, specifically the disciples who had been waiting and praying for it as Jesus had instructed them to do. We talked about that last last Sunday. And they hear the sound that is like a mighty rushing wind. It's not a mighty rushing wind, but it's a sound that sounds like that. The Hebrew and Greek words for spirit also mean breath or wind, so there's some some wordplay some symbolism going on here. Remember in John chapter 20, verse 22, John said that Jesus breathed on his disciples and told them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. He was linking uh, his resurrection with the Holy Spirit that he was going to give to come. And in John chapter 3, remember Jesus told Nicodemus that the Spirit's like a wind. It's like a wind that blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Well, they see, in addition to the sound, there's a sight, fire in the shapes of tongues. Tongues point to speech, which is about to happen. And fire symbolizes God's presence. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John the Baptist said, remember this, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, who is mightier than I, is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus reminded his disciples of this very thing just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. We looked at it last Sunday. For John baptized with water, Jesus said, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We should probably just note in the the symbolism that uh, relating the Holy Spirit uh, to fire reveals the Spirit's purging roles. It comes to burn clean. The indwelling spirit acts to purge sin. And the gospel that the spirit empowers believers to proclaim is the word of salvation, which brings cleansing or salvation. But the word Christ uh, will judge those on the last day, just as Jesus preached in John chapter 12, you'll remember, to the crowds. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all 120 of them, not just the apostles. That's what's happening in this very really dramatic scene. This is, I don't know, Steven Spielberg stuff. This is dramatic. If this was taking place, you wouldn't go, oh, huh, what do you know? It's not the response. You might be like that this morning as I'm talking, but not the response that day. It's not drama for drama's sake. It's not special effects for special effects' sake, but for significance. The sound is like a mighty rushing wind, okay, like that fills the hall. It fills the hall. And the burning flames were signs that signified that what was happening was the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. He would be invisible to us if these signs didn't come along to say, hey, here's what's happening. And the Holy Spirit took up residence in each individual believer of Christ. This is a 
singular, unique happening. It is an historical event that occurred in a specific place at a specific time with specific people. That's what we call history. And we have this historical record of it from eyewitness testimony. That's what we're reading. This is exactly what the resurrected Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 8. Just take a look at that again. Verse 4, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said is, you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Down in verse uh, 8, you will be receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is what's happening. Jesus said it would happen, and now it's happening. And then they all began to speak other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the Greek word here, translated tongues, means languages. The Holy Spirit caused these disciples to speak or utter languages other than their own, which was Greek. The, uh, these Galatian, or these, uh, uh, these, these disciples, who are all from Galilee, it's, I, it's kind of interesting, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but they're, they're not good speakers. They come from a region that kind of had garbled language. They, they were not your orators. Okay, they're kind of out in the rural area. I'm not picking on anybody, but if, if, you, if you kind of went up to down east and we're, and we're talking to a, a 100th generation lobsterman and you listen to him talk, it may take you a while to kind of pick up on that because it's different. Uh, the Galileans were kind of like that. They spoke Greek, but it was a, it was a different dialect of Greek. And everybody would have looked at them and said, they're the last people. I'm going to try to ex- who are going to try to explain something clearly to worldly men who are gathered here. It's not what they would expect. And so they begin to speak, and the, the Greek word here translated, it's, it's languages. This is, this is not what some today call the gift of speaking in tongues. It's what it's not. The Spirit did not give them an ongoing superpower of being able to speak languages they had not learned first. It didn't happen here. It's not what's described here. Nor did he give them a a less than superpower of speaking unintelligible gibberish. We never see this phenomenon again in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. The Spirit gave them this utterance or speaking of known languages from the places where these people are from without them having to learn it. It was not their language, which was Greek. And they had not learned it. Why did the Spirit do this? Why did the Spirit do this? I mean, if this isn't about, if this isn't about some type of Pentecostal speaking in tongues gift, why is it here? Because before his ascension, Jesus told them that they would receive the Holy Spirit and be clothed with power from on high. That is what's happening in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And then they would be witnesses of his to every tribe, tongue, and nation to the ends of the earth. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 13. It's the fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy just days before. Now, there was a multitude of people in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they're described to us in three ways. The first way has to do with their religious disposition. Many were born Jews. Some were proselytes. That is, they were Greeks who had converted 
to Judaism. And some were God-fearers, God-fearing Greeks who had come to believe in God but have not gone through this process of converting to Judaism. And that's one way of looking at the multitude. They're interested parties. They're here to celebrate the Passover feast. The second way that they're described is by geography, where they came from. Many were dwelling in Jerusalem. The rest were from many various nations, from every corner of the Roman Empire. That's what's represented here. Each having their own native language, their own native tongue. And this is what we're meant to see in verse 6. When the Holy Spirit gave utterance, the multitude came together. That's the key. When the Holy Spirit gave utterance, the multitude came together. What we are meant to see is that Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, when the people were sinning and they were going to build their own tower to heaven and be their own gods and make a name for themselves, God came down and he scattered them by confusing their one language. And so they went off and became these scattered nations with all of their own languages. At Pentecost, the Spirit gathers the multitudes, despite their many language, through his unity of proclamation. That's the reversal that's taking place here. The Holy Spirit has brought an epic change. The Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation of God's salvation will bring nations together to form a brand new people of God. These disciples from Galilee, they speak Greek. In fact, everyone spoke Greek. Greek was the lingua franca of the day. The disciples could have spoken in Greek, and everyone would have understood what they were saying here. The Spirit gave the disciples utterance of foreign languages to represent, that are represented by these multitudes as a sign. So that you would see the multitudes coming together by the utterance given by the Spirit. God's doing something new and different. Now that Jesus has come and accomplished salvation, God is going to gather the nations to himself through the proclamation of his saving word, the gospel. It's a, it's a mini-fulfillment, if you will, of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The disciples have received the Holy Spirit, and they have been Christ's witnesses to people from the ends of the earth, and it's immediate, an immediate little foretaste of the kingdom. This is going to be the life of the church from now on. This is going to be what believers do from now on. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans, who naturally speak Greek, maybe a little Hebrew and Aramaic, how is it that we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God? What are those mighty works? I don't think it's hard for us to guess. I, I don't think they went back to creation. The Holy Spirit was going to be, bring utterance to people to witness to Jesus. They're talking about Jesus, the mighty works of his sin-atoning death, his life-giving resurrection, his ascension to the Father. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, probably in Greek because they all understood that, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. So the third way that the multitude is described to us is by their reaction. 
many genuinely wanted to know, what does this, this is amazing. We are astonished. This, this looks epic. What does this mean? But others said, ah, they're drunk. Not only that, they're drunk on cheap wine. They mocked the Galileans. They mocked the mighty works of God that they were proclaiming. Their verbal witness to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And in doing so, they mocked the Holy Spirit. The mocking charge of being drunk, it's, it's a dismissal, isn't it? You've been on the other end of a dismissal when you want to talk to somebody about Jesus. It's a dismissal. Ah, you're drunk. Don't waste time trying to understand their drunken words. They're just drunks. Now, Peter doesn't ignore the charge, does he? <clears throat> but he doesn't waste time on them either. He dismisses them with a short, true statement. Your guess as to what's happening is wrong. They are not drunk. Nobody's drunk at 9 a.m. And then Peter gets on with his explanation from Scripture of what is truly happening. It's, it's not a major point, but I think it's helpful for us to notice. It's because I think we tend to give way too much time. Way too much time to go out of the way for the concerns of our detractors. To people who mean to dismiss us and distract us. And we help them succeed when we waste time addressing their mocking dismissals. And we do it out of concern for our reputations and our feelings. We overrate the opinions of unbelievers in our lives. The opinion of people who have underrated the name of Jesus, which is the only name to call on for salvation. We can do a little better. We can be a little wiser. We can be a little wiser. See, these are not serious men. Mockers are not serious men. Their mocking doesn't deserve our attention. Their mocking reveals the obvious need for a serious word, for witness to speak clearly, which Peter will do. Which Peter will do. We'll look at it at length next week. And so Peter goes on to explain what this means. It's like the Spirit being poured out like rain in Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, that's what Peter's referencing here, the Holy Spirit ushers in a period of time, Peter says, through Joel's words, referred to in Scripture as the last days. These are the last days. I think it's interesting when people come up to me and sometimes think, do you think we're living in the last days? Of course we're living in the last days. We have been for about 2,000 years. The last days is a period of time between the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost and the future return of Jesus on the glorious day of judgment. This is the, these are the bookends to what the Bible refers to as the period of time known as the last days. Began with Jesus' first incarnation, well, or Advent will, be, will end with his second Advent. That's the last days. It's a technical time period in Scripture. So Pentecost is an event in God's history of redemption. It's an event like... Jesus' incarnation, like 
Jesus' crucifixion. It's an event like the resurrection, an event like the ascension. On this timeline of God's history of redemption, they all belong there together, they all work together, and they're all to be understood together, which is why our series is taking all of these into account. Israel, thinking about Joel now, was always waiting for the rain. They live in an arid place. The rain was crucial for crops, which are crucial for life. There was a great rain that would take place in the spring, and the water from that rain had to last throughout the entire arid summer until the great rain in the fall. And if the re- that, that, that rain was late, if any of the rains were late, the crops were lost and the people starved. It happens over and over in Israel's history. But when the heavens opened, when the heavens opened and water poured out by the grace of God on the land, all the riverbeds, all the little rivulets were filled and rushing, and the land was watered, all of it, and everyone lived. And through the prophet Joel, God declared that in the last days, he would pour out, pour out his spirit like living water on all people. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus was with his disciples in Jerusalem. And he stood up and he cried out for everyone to hear, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the picture of this living water flowing from Jesus to believers. And then John adds this narration. He says, now this he said about the Spirit. When Jesus said that about mighty living waters, living waters flowing, he was talking about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Something was going to happen when Jesus was lifted up and glorified. The Spirit would be poured out, like living water, from Jesus to believers. Pentecost is the last great event of redemption history. Until Jesus comes back. We're in those last days. There's another significance in God's historic redemption here at Pentecost. The events at Pentecost signal Jesus' coronation as God's king. I know it's subtle. I know it seems hidden because it's happening in heaven. It's behind the scenes. But when a new king ascends to the throne, a celebration takes place. We're we're not monarchists. We, we fought a revolution to make sure that wouldn't happen to us. But it's, it's, it's referred to as his coronation. This is Jesus' coronation when the crown's put on his head. And part of the celebration is for, uh, a coronation celebration is for the new king, the benevolent king, to give gifts to his subjects. Now there's a sense in which Jesus has always been the king, right? Although he's been a king in waiting, sort of like David was. The rightful king before Saul. And there's a sense in which Jesus was the king when he entered Jerusalem, right? And he was king when he ascended into heaven. But now comes his coronation. It's not unlike the current monarchy in Britain. 
Charles became the king the moment Elizabeth died. He has taken his rightful throne. Only now, or, or soon, he'll be coronated. And that will day, be a day of celebration and recognition for the British people. And historically, gifts are given away. Freedoms are extended. Liberties are granted on the day of coronation. So here at Jesus' coronation in heaven, the gospel spills over, the coronation celebration spills over in the giving of the heavenly gift of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' disciples. So there's a new king to be proclaimed by his subjects, which Peter does later in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Same day, Peter's affirming that coronation, I believe. And in the last days, all God's people will prophesy. Not just prophets, not just priests, not just kings, but all God's people will prophesy because all God's people will have the Holy Spirit who empowers for prophesying. Sons and daughters, male and female, young and old, even the servants, even the slaves will prophesy. This is very different from the Old Testament. You see, the Spirit breaks down those walls in the temple. The courtyard for the men, the courtyard for the women, the courtyard for the Gentiles. Those walls are broken down. There is now no distinction between men who believe and women who believe. There's no distinction between Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe. Well, Scott, that's just regular New Covenant stuff. We know all that, and we expect that. Everybody can believe in Christ, right? Yes. And the Holy Spirit is the one who made it that way when he came ushering in the New Covenant at Pentecost. These last days will come to an end on the great and terrible day of the Lord. The glorious day of Christ's return. The day when all who believe in Christ will be vindicated. And the day when all who are not will be judged. And between now and then, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When Joel spoke this prophecy, the Lord referred to God. When Peter applies it at Pentecost, the Lord refers to Jesus Christ, showing his deity, showing his kingship. In Romans chapter 10, go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul quotes this very same verse from Joel chapter 2. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the Spirit who has empowered his church to be witnesses. It is his church 
who is instructed to be witnesses because we've been empowered to do so. And we've been recipients of this salvation by faith in Christ. Jesus tells his own disciples in John chapter 15, he says this, but when the helper comes, who do you think the helper is? When you read that in your Bible, it's a capital H, helper. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the plan. This is the ministry handoff taking place that we talked about last week. Now is the time for the church to preach the gospel in the power of the Spirit who has been poured out on us. And now is the time, dear friend, if you have not, for you to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from God's just wrath upon your sins against him. And then you too will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening at Pentecost. The whole new covenant is being set in motion. The proclamation of salvation through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, necessary things, is available to all. And those whom have already received it are the proclaimers of it and the evidence of it. Dear believer, your saved life is the evidence of Christ's gospel. The transformation that's taken place in your heart and in your life is the proof that the gospel saves. Still, we're an awful lot like the disciples on the day of Pentecost, left wondering, what does this mean? What does this mean? in our life, in the life of the church 2,000 years later. You know, if you were to ask the disciples then, on that day, or the day before, which they would choose? To be with Jesus, or to have the Holy Spirit that Jesus wants to give to you? I think they would probably choose to stay with Jesus. We're going we're gonna to stick with what's here instead of what's behind door number two. And I think given the opportunity, we would too. Yes, give me Jesus to walk beside rather than the Holy Spirit who dwells within. I think we would mostly answer that question. I hear people answer it in Bible study and prayer time. Well, if Jesus was just here, if Jesus was just here, we'd know what to do. Think about this for a second. If Jesus was still here walking beside you, how long would it take for you to ruin that relationship? Boy, if Jesus was here, I could just ask him what I'm supposed to say to my wife. I have to tell her that? I have to serve her like you serve the church? How long before you get a little fed up with his advice? How about when you sin? And he says, you should stop doing that. You've got the power to stop doing that. I'm right here telling you what's good for you. Before you get tired of his advice because you like your sin. How long before, with Jesus standing right next to you, would you totally ignore him? It wouldn't take us that long. So much better is the Spirit who dwells within. So much better 
is the spirit who dwells within. I think we, I think we discount the depth of intimacy that we have with Christ, that we have with the Father, that we have with the Holy Spirit. Our indwelling intimacy with the Holy Spirit is intimacy with Jesus and with the Father and with Him. But with Jesus in this particular way. Listen to the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. He said to them, they're in the upper room. He's done with the crowds. He's ministering to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you that's Jesus speaking, who's with them, and will be in you. And then Jesus adds a little further down in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, Jesus and the Father, will come to him and make our home in him. Brothers and sisters, we have a We have a new intimacy of the knowledge of God, of the fellowship with God, of love for God, of trust in God, and of faithfulness to God experientially in our lives through the Spirit. Let me try to show this to you in terms of the event of Pentecost. The believers living under the Old Testament Mosaic administration, okay, in the Old Testament, which was always meant to be a temporary administration. That has come to an end at Pentecost. That's what Peter is telling us in Joel's prophecy. I want to paraphrase uh, Sinclair Ferguson here on prophecy. Uh, He says something like, sometimes scripture, uh, in scripture, prophecy is about predicting the future. It's foretelling. But most of the time, prophecy is about knowing the God who is acting in the present. That prophecy is about knowing the God who is acting in the present. The the prophet Amos says the very same thing this way. He says that the Lord doesn't do anything without revealing himself to his servants and prophets. So, believers, from the giving of the law at Sinai to the giving of Christ at Calvary, in order to know the will of God, needed a prophet. It was the prophet who had been in the presence of the Lord intimately and then spoke the will of the Lord to the people. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters were dependent on another to have been in the presence of the Lord to come and speak to them. They were needed mediators, and they were few and far between. Peter understands that this distinction is now completely obliterated at Pentecost. The temporary old covenant is gone, and the new covenant administration has come. All believers will have a personal, intimate knowledge and access to the Lord. 
We experience direct access to God the Father through God the Son by the Spirit. Under the Old Covenant, it was by prophecy and dreams and visions that God made himself known to people in an intimate way. And it was only a few, and then they had to share it. Peter, in quoting Joel, isn't saying that we too will have dreams and visions. That's a mistaken interpretation. That's a wrong way to go. He's saying that we all have direct experiential intimacy with the triune God in the Spirit. That's what we have. But particularly with Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit now has a particular identity as the Spirit of Christ. We can call him the Holy Spirit. We can also legitimately call him the Spirit of Christ. Everything Jesus lived and accomplished, he did in and with and by the Holy Spirit. In his days on earth. The Holy Spirit who indwells us and dwells us not only in his capacity as eternal deity, but also in his identity as the Spirit who has been in and on and with Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, you, you know him. He's here with me through my entire life and mission, and then you will know him when he comes, but not till Jesus is glorified. Not until he, he actually works with Jesus all the through to the end. You know, we could say that the Son, Jesus, comes to us in Jesus' shape. God the Son, who is Spirit, came to us in Jesus' shape, and he was lifted up as a man. The Spirit comes to us in virtue of his experience in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because he has been there and done those things. He ministered in the life of the Lord Jesus, and now he has come to minister in our lives too. Same Spirit. Do you see the intimacy? That the Spirit who's with Jesus through all of this is the same Spirit who's with us, and that he is the Spirit of Christ. And at Jesus' coronation, the Father and the Son said to each other, now's the time to send the Spirit. And the true and legitimate spiritual intimacy we have is with the Father and with the Son who have made their homes in us, in the Spirit. That's intimate. It's the personal presence of God. Pentecost brings to us the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And we'll talk mostly about this next week, but Pentecost is a sign when the Spirit comes, a confirming sign to the disciples that they're living in the light of Christ's resurrection and in the anticipation of their own resurrection that their sins had indeed been forgiven, that death had indeed been defeated, and that they were new and confident men and women as they spoke the gospel. In bringing the new covenant, it is the Holy Spirit who writes the law of God upon our hearts so that we want to do it because it's in our hearts. 
the law no longer condemns us, but instructs us in obedience. It has become for us the law of liberty and of love. And with the Spirit's presence, we can do it. And the indwelling Holy Spirit is power from on high for the church. To proclaim God's salvation with this confidence that everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's true that Jesus would not leave us or forsake us, but that he dwells within us by his very own spirit who abides within everyone who believes in him, that we might experience your close and intimate presence, that we might have your power to do your will and to proclaim your message. Father, help us to yield Help us to yield our lives, our preferences, our choices, all to your will. As your, heart is, as your law is written in our hearts, as the Spirit prompts us to follow, as the Spirit wells within us, rejoicing for the good words of God and Christ. Lord, help us to be your people. All for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.